Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Daron. And I'm Nicole. And today, we're talking food politics with Dr. Marion Nessel. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got a very special guest today, Dr. Marion Nessel. We had the opportunity of having a brief yet wonderful conversation with Marion about her new book, Let's Ask Marion. Just to give you a little background on Marion, she is a professor of nutrition, food studies, and public health at NYU, which she chaired the department from 1988 to 2003. She's worked as the Senior Nutrition Policy Advisor in the Department of Health and Human Services and editor of the 1988 Surgeon General's Report on Nutrition and Health. Her research examines scientific and socioeconomic influences of food obesity and food safety with an emphasis on the role of food industry influence. She's published several books. I always say food politics is a must read. And her most recent book that she came on here to talk to us about today is Let's Ask Marion, co-authored with Kerry Truman. So, Marion, recent book of yours, I you sent it to us, Ask Marion. I want to talk a little bit about that. It's a compilation of some of the work that you've done, correct? Mm-hmm. How did this book come to life? Well, it was actually an invitational book. Uh, University of California Press has been my publisher for four books, and they wanted a small summary of um, my thinking about a lot of food issues, something that would be short and sweet. Um, I think their fantasy was that it would be at check stands at bookstores because it would be very small. And they asked me to do that about three or four years ago. And I was terribly resistant. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I write large 500 page books with millions of references. And I couldn't imagine how I could possibly summarize that in something that would be really small. And we batted it back and forth and we tried several different kinds of ideas. And finally, I thought of uh, Carrie Truman, who was a friend who about 10 years ago was running a blog and would ask, would fire off questions every now and then that I really enjoyed answering. Her questions were kind of well-informed and witty and they were fun and they were often about things I'd never thought about. So it occurred to me that if she would be willing to ask questions, it might be a lot easier for me to answer them than to try to come up with essays on my own. I had done a column for the San Francisco Chronicle for five years that was very, very hard for me to do. It was supposed to be a Q&A, but nobody ever asked any questions. So I had to come up with it. And I found it very hard to do um, short essays. It's much easier for me to write long form academic work. So this was a big challenge, uh, but I think it worked. I thought it was amazing. Thank no. you for sending us the book. <laughs> oh, thanks. I, th- I thought it was good. And you know, I really enjoyed that it touched up on all different aspects of food politics, essentially. Mm -hmm. 
And I wanted to kind of get into that because I, I don't think that people think about food politics, that food politics is really a thing, mm-hmm. right? I think that that's something that's kind of hidden and politics, especially nowadays, it's so ingrained in our lives and food is the last place that we mm. think it would be or would even want it to be. So can you to kind of talk to us a little bit about how how are nutrition recommendations made? You know, I know in when you initially wrote food politics, you wrote about, you know, how the food pyramid came and the, the you know, what preceded the food pyramid. How are nutrition recommendations made and what kind of a role does the USDA play in those recommendations? Well, it's a that's a big, complicated political question because <laughs> uh, you, I was once on the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee in 1995, um, so I have a pretty good idea about how these things are done. Uh, the committee members were all nutrition academics of one kind or another, and we came in with a lot of opinions already formed. We've done a lot of reading. We knew the literature. We kind of knew what the literature said about what's healthy to eat and what's not healthy to eat. And then it was horse training. Um, you know, it was trying to come to co- compromising on the words that would be used. But you know, everybody knows what a healthy diet is. Yeah. A healthy diet has, you know, it's so simple. I'm always talking about this. It's so simple that Michael Pollan can do it in seven words. Eat yes. food, not too much, mostly plants. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, it's that that's all there is to it. Everything else is elaboration and um, complication. But, you know, there are diets all over the world that are very, very different. And the ones that are largely plant-based are really healthy. Um, The ones that aren't, aren't. And when you introduce highly processed commercial foods into countries, that's when their diets get bad. Everybody knows this. It's not, you know, this isn't something that's hidden. But Advice to the public is a much more complicated thing. And when I was on the Dietary Guidelines Committee in 1995, we were told there's lots of research, the research is contradictory, do the best you can based on the available research to give the American public the best advice you possibly can based on that research. Um, Because it's government's role to advise the public about diet and health. That's changed since then. Starting in 2005, the the committees no longer wrote the dietary guidelines. When I was on, we did the research, we wrote the guidelines, the federal agencies printed them with very, very few changes. Uh, Starting in 2005 under Bush II, um, the agencies wrote the guidelines. And now the agencies set the research agenda in these, the current guidelines, the agencies set the research agenda and write the guidelines. So the committee has is limited by what the agencies set as the research agenda. Consequently, the 2020 guidelines will not talk about ultra-processed foods, which I think is the most important innovation in nutrition advice um, in decades. They won't talk about sustainability, which is also extraordinarily important. Um, And they're not going to talk about meat, which is a big controversial issue these days, because those weren't on the agenda. Now, you mentioned in your book, there's uh, and there were a couple instances of this. But since you bring up meat, 
you talk about and, and i remember this from years back you know government wanted to make uh recommendations to eat less meat and there was kind of backlash on that where it was like because of saturated fat people are consuming too much saturated fat we want to avoid that and then eat less meat obviously becomes something where from a, a big business standpoint that's that's kind of like a no-no so there's backlash on that and then you know companies will come in and then it, it became eat more lean meat am i correct on that yeah something like that are you they, eat they healthier no actually it's eat less saturated fat doesn't mention meat at all and you're supposed to know that saturated fat is a euphemism for beef right but i mean look at the meat industry we've just seen in the COVID pandemic the meat industry uh, writing for the President of the United States a statement to invoke the Defense Production Act to keep meat processing plants open, even when thousands of workers were getting sick in those plants. Um, and we know that the meat industry did that because of Freedom of Information Act emails that have come to light. We know the way the meat industry fought public health recommendations. Um, also because we have the emails that demonstrate that and also public actions that demonstrate that. Um, so the meat industry has one job and one job only, and that's to sell meat. If people are eating more meat, that's good for the for industry. If people are eating less meat, it's bad. And if you are paying attention to dietary guidelines and advice about diet and health, uh, meat has been linked to, beef particularly, has been linked to cancer risk. Um, and it's also the food commodity that has the greatest impact on greenhouse gases. So there are two reasons why it would be better to eat less meat. Less doesn't mean not necessarily mean none. Uh, this doesn't mean that everybody has to become a vegetarian or a vegan. It just means that in countries where we're eating meat several times a day, uh, we could substitute something else for that and everybody would be better off. And you mentioned that, you know, kind of like our, I was actually surprised to hear you in the book mention about the, you know, the kind of hunter gatherer and, and where our, our ancestry came from. I've, I've always been under the assumption, you know, we've got like the paleo diet, put it kind of in quotes. <laughs> right. Oh and I, you know, I've been under the, the thought that it's hard to hunt. So we were probably predominantly gatherer and then hunter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like you said, like Michael Pollan says, right, in Omnivore's Dilemma, we were we were predominantly plant based. Mm -hmm. And then we supplemented in meat. Well, I mean, I think they ate everything they could. You know, this is pre agriculture, they weren't growing food. Um, you know, and the evidence for meat eating comes because they're bones that have been move forward, our archaeologists find bones, but there's no evidence of plant consumption because that disappeared. I mean, maybe what they can do now is they could, you know, analyze stomach contents of explorers and adventurers who've been locked in the ice for thousands and thousands of years. They have evidence of plant eating and meat eating. Um, so they, what they could get their hands on. And it's what they could get their hands on was a lot harder to get than uh, what we can get our hands on. Um, and mostly what we can get our hands on because it's cheaper is highly processed foods, which we would, much better, we would be much better off eating less of. Again, not necessarily none, but less. On the topic of meat, you also did mention the, um, 
the plant-based uh, meats, meat substitutes now, right? So mm-hmm. we've got like Beyond Burgers, we've got, um, uh, what are the other ones? Impossible Burger. And now we've got Kellogg's just came out with to kind of compete in that market, uh, incognito. <laughs> what, what, what are your, which is a clever name, by the way, I love, I love the name. Yeah. Uh, what are, what are your thoughts in terms of some of that stuff? Well, I don't know. I mean, I've tasted them. I think they're a pretty good substitute, but I don't get the whole thing because, um, you know, I'm going to eat food, not too much, mostly plants person. Why would you want to eat a highly processed, invented artificial right. food? You don't have to eat meat. There's no dietary, you know, dietary requirement for meat. You can eat it if you like it. You don't have to eat it if you don't want to. Why would you want to eat something artificial? So that's my view of it. And I realize this is not a particularly common view because I've talked to a lot of people about how happy they are <laughs> having these products, particularly vegans. I mean, I'm always quoting this one vegan mother who said to me, oh, she said, these products are just the most wonderful thing. I can now take my kids to fast food restaurants and they'll have something to eat there. Well, you know, I'm not recommending fast food restaurants. (laughs) Um, You know, I don't. Yeah. I mean, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. I used to take my kids to McDonald's on their birthdays. It was just a wonderful place to have a birthday party. It's really easy. They have everything all set up. I took my kids to McDonald's two or three times a year. I didn't take them there every day. Big difference. You know, I mean, one thing is a treat. One is normal. It's the normalization of highly processed junk food that I think has been a big problem because these foods have a lot of calories. I think part of the the parenting piece to that is that that becomes the lifestyle as opposed to what you were just mentioning it being a special occasion. Cause that's how I grew up. We went to places like McDonald's, but only for a birthday or a birthday party, or if I don't yeah, know, if I want a dance deal. competition, something, yeah. but no, it, it wasn't. Was an every- like yeah. Really liked it. And, yeah. And that they didn't expect it every day. Right. So there's been big change in society. And that I think is very difficult for parents. Um, But to go back to the uh, artificial meats, I'm amazed at the technology. I I think they taste pretty good. They taste like meat, but why bother? I just don't get it. You know, if you really like meat, eat a little bit of it. If you think you shouldn't be eating meat because you're an animal rights person, you don't think animals should be grown for food, that's fine. But why still want it? That's the part I don't understand. Well, I look at it, you know, there aren't many high protein sources. And I think that's what they're trying to mimic as well. There are plenty of high protein sources. They're called beans. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Let me ask you from an environmental standpoint, like where are we now from an environmental standpoint in terms of the food industry and, and where do we need to go? Like how does the government need to get involved? Well, the food industry is very concerned about the environment because they're under enormous pressure. Uh, about it. And they're going to do whatever is convenient for them. Um, They're going to, I mean, the classic example is the soda industry, which funds campaigns to clean up the soda bottles that have littered the world, but fights behind the scenes, any kinds of bottles, things where you have extra money and you you get money if you return the bottles. They fight those initiatives. Um, They're all trying to reduce the amount of energy they use, the amount of plastic that they use, and that kind of thing. But the environment would be much 
much better off if they weren't making the products to begin with. Uh, but that's not how, I mean, we're talking about capitalism here. And the food industry's purpose is to make money. I don't know why that would surprise anybody. That's their purpose. They're corporations like any other. Um, and they're only going to do what they're required to do, which is why I think government regulation is so important. And they would be better off with government regulation because it would set a level playing field and it would make their lives much easier. But that's not how they see it. I wanted to talk about obesity, if you want to bring that into the conversation, in terms of, you know, obesity levels are at an all-time high. And mm -hmm. so, I don't know, I just wanted to get your opinion on what you think is re really the issue and what are with some obesity? of the obesity? Yeah. The issue is people are eating too much. Too much. Yeah, they're eating too much for their energy. I mean, that for their energy expenditure. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that's pretty well defined. Um, yeah. The question that has to be asked is why? Why? Yeah. yeah. What happened? I mean, obesity, the prevalence of obesity started to increase dramatically in about 1980 and went up by an astounding amount between 1980 and 2000 and has continued to rise, although not quite at the same rate. And, there, and there's just tons of evidence that people ate 300 to 500 calories more a day, mm -hmm. starting in the early 1980s and picked up. And that accounts for the overall 20 pound weight gain across the United States during that period. You know, and I can remember what happened then, you know, the famous gigantic muffins. I remember when they came out. I mean, if, there's, if there is one reason why people started eating more, it's that portion sizes got larger. Yes, the supersize me. The supersize me portions. And I remember when the giant muffins came out, bagels went from being what are now mini bagels to being these gigantic things. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm always saying, if I had one thing I could teach the American public, it would be that larger portions have more calories. Yeah. You know, and you know, some people think that it's sugar and some people think that it's fat. I don't think it matters what you eat. Uh, if you eat more calories than you expend in metabolism and physical activity, you're going to gain weight. Some people are going to gain more weight than others. Mm -hmm. These are people who are genetically predisposed. Um, but genetics didn't change in 1980. The environment changed. Mm -hmm. And there are plenty of observations and studies that show how the environment changed and why it changed. I mean, I think it's because between 1980 and 2000, the number of calories available for consumption in the United States went up by almost a thousand, went up by almost a thousand calories a day per capita. Mm. And the food companies had to sell that. Yeah. And that's pretty competitive. Uh, you know, if you're trying to sell food in an environment that contains 4,000 calories a day per capita, and people only need 2,000 per capita, you've got a big selling job to do. And so they figured out all these ways to get people to eat more food, to buy more food. They didn't care whether they ate it or not. They just needed to buy it. But people usually eat food they buy. <laughs> so portion sizes got got bigger. Food became sold in places where it had never been sold before. Mm. Um, it became acceptable to eat in bookstores. Or movie theaters. Yeah. No, clothing stores. You go into a clothing store, the first thing they do is offer you food and coffee or whatever. Mm. Um, you never used to be able to do that. And I remember when I first came to NYU, 
the library had signs all over it. Uh, don't eat here. And now the library's got two or three cafes in it. And everybody eats in the library. I, I mean, this, these are big social changes that took place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that has to do with food industry imperative to sell more. Oh, and then there was Wall Street, because the other thing that happened in, 19, in the early 1980s was the attempt by the shareholder value movement to get Wall Street to approve and to endorse higher immediate returns on investment for stockholders, never mind blue chip stocks that gave long-term returns on investment. We want higher immediate returns. We want more money now. And that put even more pressure on food companies because now they had to show growth in profits. It wasn't enough to make a profit. They had to grow their profits every 90 days if they wanted to keep their stock prices up. So the business environment, I think, has pushed a lot of this. And of course, people aren't aware of this. All they saw was for the same price, because food is so cheap, because there's so much of it, you could get a muffin that was three times the size of the one you got before. You'd be a chump not to take it. <laughs> you know, and nobody thought about the calories in it. Mm. You know, Everybody thinks that one muffin has 100 calories, no matter how big it is. Unfortunately, that's not true. Yeah. So what the line between personal responsibility and then the food industry, what percentage does that fall in terms of, you know, this obesity race? Like, you're not talking about personal responsibility. You have to have informed personal responsibility. mm -hmm. And you're asking individuals who may or may not know anything about science Mm -hmm. to make decisions in the absence of complete information. Yeah. First of all, nobody believes that advertising has any effect on what they choose. Right. You ask anybody, does advertising affect you? Of course not. You know, it's not supposed to be recognized as a force or an influence on choice of anything. As advertising executives have explained to me over and over again, if advertising is working well, nobody notices it. It's part of the landscape. It slips below the radar of critical thinking. You're not supposed to think about it. So people don't realize that they're being advertised to. They're acting in a subliminal, subconscious way. It's very difficult to exert personal responsibility if you don't know what your subconscious is doing. (laughs) And how would you know? How would you know that? So the food companies knew that because they were spending a lot of money on research about what makes people do the things they do. They know much more about it than we do. And they very effectively advertise. I mean, look at the way, I mean, you never advertise a product directly. You're always advertising emotion or some sort of something that people react to emotionally. And you don't see it unless you're, unless you're sitting there with some obnoxious ap- academic uh, saying, um, or or parent with child, <laughs> saying to your child, now, dear, what are those people trying to sell you? <laughs> How are those people trying to sell that to you? That's media literacy, and most people don't do that. Well, let me ask you this, just from a health standpoint. I, often ta- I oftentimes find in coaching individuals that you graduate college, you still can't read a food label. Uh, oh, yeah. Right. So where do you think my stance on, on that has always been health class should actually be health class. 
uh, and K K through 12, I really think that people should be mm. more educated on food labels, calories, you know, carbs, fat, protein, what, what makes up your foods, uh, you know, sugar intake and, and hunger and satiety and things like that. So like, where's your take on things like that? Well, I think education is very important, but it's never enough. Yeah. No, it's never enough. It has to be accompanied by some kind of policy. You know, I'm all for it. I'm an educator. I'm all for education. But that's a one-on-one thing. You're asking each individual to understand and to act. Um, that's asking a lot of individuals. So the, um, you know, the food label thing is sort of amusing because it's really hard to figure out a label that will tell you everything that anybody needs to know in a food. And when the FDA first designed the food labels in the early 1990s, they did a lot of consumer testing on a variety of possible labels. And uh, Nobody understood any of them. I'm serious about this. You can go, you can go read the Federal Register notice. Yeah. Nobody understood any of them. And the one that they picked, the nutrition facts label, was the one that um, people understood least worst. But nobody understood any of them. Too complicated. And so there's been a lot of talk about simplifying that by putting red, green, yellow stickers on food products, by putting warning labels, front of package labels. The food industry has fought them way harder than anybody has been able to resist. But there are countries that have these. Chile, for example, has warning labels on processed food products that are high in fat, sugar, salt, and calories. And they consumer tested those labels on, I think, five to seven-year-olds, kids. And they picked a design that five to seven-year-olds could get. They wanted a design that children would understand and that illiterate people would understand. And they have these black warning labels that are perfectly visible and a kid, kids can go up and point and say, don't buy that because that's the wrong product. And that's been very effective, except the food industry figured out ways of getting around it right away. So what do you think is the solution in all this? How do we solve this problem? Well, you, you have two choices. You can do it through government. You can do it through civil action and the or civil, civil society, strengthen civil society and, and have a governments that are not sold out to corporations. Yeah. But in situations where you have weak government or captured government, government that's been captured by corporations as ours is, then the only thing that you have left is civil society and organizing civil society. And that's where I'm putting my bets these days. <laughs> you know, it may be with our new administration in the United States that we'll have a better chance of getting some kind of regulation. But the most important international document that's been written about this, which was a report that came out in Lancet in January 2019, laid out an agenda. The barriers to doing anything about the food system were three barriers, uh, captured government, weak civil society, and a very strong food industry. So the obvious solution is to get government to regulate the food industry. And they have a whole great big laundry list of things that they think should be done. But the only way to do that is through civil demand and a government that's interested in public health. 
we haven't had one for a while. Yeah. Very complex problem from a government standpoint, Mm -hmm. right? Not an easy solution. Oh, I think they're easy solutions. Just the, <laughs> the food industry isn't going to like it. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so at what point does public health become more important than food industry profits? That, right. it seems to me, is the question that has to be asked. In the same way, meat industry profits were clearly more important than meatpacking workers getting COVID-19. It was perfectly clear that the profits were more, the, I mean, you have to use the word trumped, that profits trumped public health in that situation. If you have a government that thinks that public health is important and does things for public health and sets a level playing field, um, the food industry will go along with it because they have to. And from a, a civil standpoint, you know, maybe something, uh, some kind of a takeaway for our audience in terms of some of the things that they can do. You mean um, to become, to try to strengthen civil society? Yeah. Yeah, Join organizations. Find an organization that's working on a food issue that you think is important and support that organization, Mm -hmm. either by participating in what it's doing or by giving it money or however, however else you do it. You know, figure out what you think is the most important, the most important issues to work on. You know, I mean, one of the big worries is that everybody likes the idea of giving food to poor people, um, when I think it's much more important in the long run for those organizations that are involved in food donations to people who don't have enough money to try to change the policies so that you don't have to worry about that. Charity is never going to fulfill the role that government has to fulfill. Government can always do it better. I think we also have to make good quality food more affordable. You know, you go and buy a bag of good chips for idea. ninety for ninety nine cents, right? And mm-hmm. you can't buy a piece of fruit for that, right? And that have, but that that's a policy issue. I mean, there are reasons why junk foods are as cheap as they are. Mm-hmm. They have to do with policies that are the, uh, my favorite one is marketing to children marketing junk food to children. Companies spent billions of dollars on that. Every penny of that is deductible from income taxes as a business expense. That's taxpayers paying for marketing to children, supporting corporations marketing to children. You know, we allow big companies like Amazon and Walmart to pay their workers very low wages and the public pays, supports those low wages by through food assistance programs and other kinds of welfare programs that people who don't make enough money get. So there's something wrong with this whole system. And unless we are willing to stand up to corporations and insist that corporations do the right thing, pay their workers decently, pay the um, externalized costs of what their products are causing and obesity or environmental damage, then we end up paying for it. Um, I mean, those are complicated political concepts that a lot of people don't understand. But I think anybody who's paying attention to what happened with COVID-19 got a real education in in externalized costs. Well, we pay for it on the back end, too, with healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. Right. We pay for the obesity epidemic. Yeah, absolutely. So the who who was most susceptible to the really bad effects of COVID-19 besides old people? Those who were obese or had conditions for which obesity is a risk factor, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and so forth. 
So these things are tightly linked, very closely related, and taxpayers end up paying for it. So that seems that's not, that's not right. <laughs> we can do better. We can do better than that. It, the th- it comes yeah. full circle. It comes full circle. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a very lengthy, long term. Uh, it's going to take a long time to get there. Marion, I appreciate you. I appreciate all your knowledge. I absolutely appreciate you coming on and talking to us about this. For anybody listening, Dr. Marion Nessel, her new book, Ask Marion, available everywhere, I'm assuming. I have no idea. <laughs> I'm sequestered. <laughs> all right. Uh, we we will uh, find a link and drop it in this episode for you. And, uh, you know, if you want to purchase the book, read about it. I appreciate you coming on, Marion. Yeah. Oh, thank you for your time. A pleasure. So good luck to you. Stay safe. Thank you. You too. You too. Ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week. 